China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Dan Mattingly, an assistant professor in the Yale University Department of Political Science. Today we'll be discussing his new working paper, How the Party Commands the Gun, Coups, Revolts, and the Military in China. Dan, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me here. So before we dive into the paper, which I think is really interesting and speaks to many of the key questions those of us external actors or analysts have now about what's happening in China's political system, how strong is it, how strong is is Xi Jinping, you come at this from a really interesting and essential angle. I wanted to ask you about sort of an intellectual biography question here which is, how did you come to this topic? What are your general interests in this space? And I think I'd like to know what to you is the connective tissue between the work you've done so far. So my general interest in this comes from trying to understand how the Chinese political system works and why it's been so resilient. And so my first book, which is called The Art of Political Control, which is in China, which just came out this year, looks at the really local level at how the state implements policies like the one-child policy, like land requisition programs, and uh, how the state controls protest. And writing about this mostly in the late Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping era got me curious in sort of bigger picture questions about how this system has evolved over time. And if you pull away from the really local level, how does political control at the elite level work? And so this ultimately then pushed me into thinking about the role of the military in politics. So my first kind of my first book was a lot about grassroots control and how the state tries to control individuals at the grassroots, especially through informal means, through through local civil society organizations, through uh, kind of grassroots autonomous infiltrating groups like neighborhood committees. If you kind of pull back and think about how the system works as a whole, I think obviously elite politics is super important and understanding the role of coercion in elite politics uh, in China seemed like something that comparativists uh, hadn't hadn't thought as much about and particularly thinking about the role the role of the military in politics over time. So this project is kind of grew out of this interest in understanding political control and coercion, first at the local level, and then I'm trying to, in this paper, kind of take it up a level and understand how this has worked at the elite level in China. I wanted to start with actually the very first sentence of the, the paper, where you write, autocratic rule is a violent business. And I think Many of us intuitively would understand that, but I don't think would specifically understand it. And so I wanted to know if you could put yourself in the shoes of an autocrat, a a generic dictator or or autocrat. Why is it a violent business? What are they worried about? Well, autocracy is a violent business. So I think if you are an autocrat, who do you have to fear? What what keeps you up at night if you are not just Xi Jinping, but an autocrat and one of the, you know, about half the world's population is governed by an autocracy. It's a pretty common mode of governance. What do autocrats have to fear? I think in the popular imagination, the idea is that autocrats have to fear unrest. You have to fear protesters in the street storming the gates and taking you down. Generally, though, what has led to the unconstitutional lead of exit of authoritarian leaders from office isn't 
mass protest isn't mass uprising. Instead, it's coups. It's it's other elites taking down elites, and that's really what autocrats have to worry. So some work by my colleague in the political science department at Yale, Hans Folick, shows that almost 70% of leaders in the post-war period of autocratic leaders, when they've exited office, it's been because of coups. Uh, and so it's this fear of other elites that's that's really important. And and who launches coups and when are coups successful? Nine and ten times, as work by Erica De Bruyne at Hamilton College says, nine out of ten, ten times a successful coup is led by the military. So if you're an autocrat, you really have to be nervous about what's the military doing and is is the military coming after me? I think if you even take like a broader view and look at Chinese history, if you want to go back, if you want to go back before the CCP era, if you want to go back before 1949 and look at Imperial China, something like a fifth of Chinese emperors were killed in office and another fifth were deposed by other elites. So if you want to take a really big kind of, and that's work by Yu Ha Wang, a colleague at, at Harvard. So if you take a really kind of big sweeping view of Chinese history and you're willing to go before 1949, it's certainly something that the Chinese political system has had to deal with. The CCP, of course, is way different than Imperial China and has, has been successful to date in fending off coups. And that's in some ways what makes the CCP interesting. It's, it's the question here is partly, like, what's the secret sauce that the CCP has that's helped it avoid more or less this problem? The CCP hasn't avo- apparently hasn't avoided attempted coups, but it's avo- certainly avoided a, a successful coup to date. That's actually a good point to ask my, my next question, which was, what does regime type tell us about probability of, of a coup? I mean, you, we talked about generically autocracies, but of course, these come in many, many different flavors. There's military-led systems. There's, you know, Kim family monarchy in North Korea. Is there anything about regime type and coup that is important for us to understand? Sure. I mean, I think in general, if you take a kind of broad view, different types, for example, of authoritarian regimes, one-party regimes like China under the CCP, are generally more stable, more resilient, less likely to experience a coup. Actual military regimes, China, even though the military is important to China, it's by no means a military dictatorship. Uh, military dictatorships are, are you know, more, more vulnerable to coups than one-party systems like China. So China, kind of in a comparative context, fits into this larger, broader context where one-party regimes do better than other regimes at avoiding successful coups. Also, just one other sort of level set before we, we drill down here is this interesting feature of political military relations in China or party military relations in China, which is, this is a bit of a logical conundrum. We can say that party military, but of course the the military is a party military. And so there's a little bit of a logical backflip you have to get through to think about contrasting the two or the relationship of one or the other when one is supposed to be a subordinate unit of the party. And so of course, when Mao Zedong says the party commands the gun, the gun is is an element of the party. But that, of course, is, a, is an interesting, unique feature. Typically, we think about nas- national armies versus party armies. The other question I had was just, I'm curious if autocrats learn over time, by which I mean, there's all this really fantastic work that's being done, especially over the past 10 years or so, when we've kind of emerged out of our end of history, Turkey-induced coma, and autocracy started to really matter again. There's lots of innovations in quantitative and qualitative understanding of how autocracies work. I wonder if autocrats are getting better at understanding how to be autocrats. That question may make no sense, or we may have no way of falsifying it. But I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, those are two, those are two, great, two great questions. So first, this question of, is it important that this PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is a party army, not a national army? 
I do think it's important that the structures of the PLA really matter. And, and the fact that the PLA is a party army institutionally makes it different than the template that people have in their heads. If you're not familiar with the Chinese military or militaries in you know, Leninist systems like the Soviet Union, the PLA looks pretty strange because the PLA has uh, some funny features. Most notably, it has political commissars pretty far down into the, into the military hierarchy. And these political commissars, you know, serve alongside commanders who are, in, you know, in a kind of non-party military might be the chief commanding officer. These, these political commissars play an important role in ensuring political discipline and loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party. So that makes this, you know, in, in some ways organizationally a pretty different military than a kind of national military that's not a, that's not a party army. I'm just going to interject quickly to say you might be able to see over my left shoulder, there's a, a poster for one of the greatest movies of all time, The Hunt for Red October. And if you remember, the, the scene that everyone remembers in that is Marco Ramius, played by, by Sean Connery, killed one man before he was able to or felt as a prerequisite to successfully pull off his defection. And that was the party commissar who was installed aboard uh, aboard the submarine. That's right. That's absolutely that's right. Yeah. So that's... Um... I've been waiting for someone to mention commissars in this podcast so I could just point to the poster and reference Hunter in October. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that's I, and in some ways that's, you know, obviously the Hunter in October is like a really fun movie. That's a total fiction. Like it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on the PLA Navy and how like submarines work. It's hard to imagine that actually working on a PLA Navy submarine because the one kind of chief political commissar on the submarine wouldn't be the only political officer on the submarine, almost certainly. But it's a it's a great illustration of how of, of how it works. Right. And, and you have this person who's monitoring kind of like monitoring you, which comes out in a really vivid way in that movie. I want to add just very quickly a shout out to Captain Jeff Benson, who was a fellow at CSIS just last year and, and spent his time researching and publishing a report called Party on the Bridge, which is about the role of the commissar system in the PLA Navy. And Jeff became interested in that when he was commanding a destroyer out of Yakuska. He would look through his binoculars over at his counterpart in a PLA vessel, PLAN vessel, and he would wonder who's on the bridge and who's making decisions. So his report is an attempt to explore how that dynamic of dual command structures, how does that operate in practice? And of course, as we were discussing that, we spent a lot of time talking about the hunt for October and actually where that example of the Soviet Union was inapposite to the PLAN because there are really important differences to how the party thinks about the role of the commissar. Yeah, I'd, I'd strongly recommend that report because I've read it and it's really nice. It, it really clarifies for someone like me who's not, you know, for example, I don't know that much about the PLA Navy. It really clarified for me a lot of the ways in which this, this commissar system works. So for listeners, I would definitely recommend checking out that report. So does it matter that a PLA is a party army? I mean, I think, yes, in important ways. But also, of course, it doesn't mean that the PLA does not play an important role in politics and that, in principle, the PLA couldn't intervene in violent ways. Of course, the PLA did, in the Cultural Revolution, in important ways, intervene in elite politics and gathered a lot of political power at, at elite levels in the political system. That's gradually changed over time since the Cultural Revolution. For example, the number of PLA generals in the Politburo Standing Committee has dropped from like having some in the Cultural Revolution era to now having none since, since the 1980s. The number of generals in the Politburo has also declined over time. 
So there is a kind of overtime trend in which the PLA has exercised less influence than it did in the height of the Cultural Revolution, but they still remain important. And I think they still remain important for, to some degree, maybe not for deciding who China's leaders are and deciding the direction of policy. But if you are a Chinese leader and you do need the support of the PLA. And so, for example, in the run-up to the 19th Party Congress, when they were talking, you know, the, the uh, Xi Jinping switched from the straw poll of 2007 that you know, supposedly Xi Jinping won this straw poll between him and Li Keqiang in, in the run-up to the 2007 Party Congress within the Central Committee, and that's basically why Xi Jinping became General Secretary. Xi Jinping did away with that in the run-up to the 19th Party Congress, but he still consulted with a lot of people, right, famously, uh, in the reports of who he consulted with and who other people in leading bodies consulted with were generals, right? A lot of the generals of military regions and also, obviously, the people on the Central Military Commission were some of the people who they consulted with, and presumably consulted with about like which officer should, should join the party central committee, but also it's plausible that they were also consulted on, on other appointments. Regardless of whether they were, the fact that there are a number of generals on the central committee is also another kind of unusual institutional feature suggesting, you know, the military retains important amounts of influence within the party. Well, I had interjected with my overt enforced reference to Hunt for an October, but the second question I had asked you is just, are autocrats learning? Are they getting smarter? Are they getting better at maintaining rule? As you have outsiders studying these systems, publicly putting this information out, I'm just curious if there's any sort of feedback loop. I'm not sure that there's necessarily feedback loop between academic work on, on autocracies and autocrats learning over time, but it is the case that coups have become less frequent over time. Over the course of the last 50 years, they've become less, less and less frequent. So it does seem like there probably is some learning that's happening. And I, my guess is that the learning is probably looking at what other autocrats are doing and looking at the, the institutions that these other autocrats are adopting and saying, hey, these institutions probably work to insulate myself from coups uh, and, then, and then adopting those institutions. And among other things that the PLA is doing is they have you know, these exchanges, these party and military exchanges with other countries. And, it's, and you know, one, one of many plausible ways that this is happening is also kind of like direct information sharing between autocracies about how to, how to insulate themselves from the military. I forget the specifics of the conversation, but there's that anecdote, I think it was 2008 or nine or something, where, where Putin goes up and grabs you know, Hu Jintao by the collars and says, you got to get your system under control. And of course, you know, the CCP talks a lot about, you know, as a, as a learning party, as Tracy Dong, it talks a lot about studying uh, international examples, studying the collapse of the Soviet Union, which of course has become an E-Day fix for Xi Jinping himself. So maybe that is where they're drawing relevant examples. I've probably made you spend too much time clearing groundwork, and I want to really focus on this, this really fascinating and I think quite important paper. So I wanted to ask you just a quick methodological question on this, and then I want to ask you to dive into your thesis. The two-part methodological question is, first, you've amassed this or created this database from which you did this analysis. And I think those of us who look at the system and it seems to be a wall of opacity, I wonder, can you just talk us through how one builds databases and what the sort of first initial steps are. Did you think, did you stumble across something and say, you know what, I found one name, there's 9,999 others that I'll probably be able to pull together, or is it a, you know, is it a discovery process? So there's a lot of stuff that's open source. So this is an entire, you know, it's a database created entirely from open source stuff that's available in the libraries and on the internet. So when it comes to just figuring out who these officers are, there are a couple of different ways to do this. So the PLA doesn't have websites where they have at least as far as I'm aware, lists of who all of the current and past officers are. But 
there's a lot of this stuff is not, you know, it's not secret. So there, I think there are, there are a couple ways to wrap your hands around this. One is sources in the U.S. or a number of sources in the U.S. who've just kind of compiled lists of who, who these officers are over time. So the U.S. Department of Defense has a number of things that are public and in U.S. libraries that just that have over time lists of who these officers are. So that's a great starting point for just knowing like who who served in what position when. And then from there, once you, once you have those names, there's a lot that can be done with open sources. For example, there are a lot of public biographies that the PLA has published about key military leaders that many of which you can now get in libraries and universities in the United States. There's also a lot of stuff that's available on the internet. So you have, you know, PLA officers granting interviews to sources in, in China and, and, you know, these interviews, they kind of talk about maybe the background of these PLA officers. So what the data set is, is basically a list of, you know, started with what I thought were, you know, about a hundred of the top key positions in the PLA, you know, identified who the people were and when they served in these different positions, which is all open source and easy to find. And then for each of these people went through and just tried to find basic information about them. Again, all of which is mostly just available on either through libraries or, or on the internet. You know, when were they born? What ethnicity are they? Where did they go to school? Did they graduate from a party school? Were they in the Central Committee, the National People's Congress, and so on? And then we've just created a kind of career biography for each of these leaders. So you've got these resources in hand and you explore something I found really interesting. You talk about there's this perceived tension that exists for an autocrat, which makes intuitive sense to me. I come in, Jude the dictator. I look out at this unruly country, including despite what you said about, obviously I'm worried about elites, but I am also worried about the sort of unruly masses and controlling and containing everything so that I can push forward with my agenda. I can build up a security services and a, and a military. I can strengthen them. I can empower them. That seems to offer me a degree of protection and control. But unfortunately, what I've also done is I've also empowered actors and organs, which now have, functionally speaking, more power than I do, both in terms of surveillance and, and the gun. So I seem to be in this autocratic jam or this autocratic bind. You've sort of started or, or looked into this tension that, that autocrats deal with, it was assumed that this was a trade-off. It was kind of one or the other. What did you find as you explored this in the specifically in, in the Chinese context? In the Chinese context, there doesn't seem to be such a clear trade-off between guarding against revolts and, and guarding against coups. So as you said, in the literature, there's this idea that autocrats, when they're designing these institutions, when they're designing coercive institutions, have a choice. You can either empower the security, security forces, empower the military in some way, and make them really effective against guarding its revolts. Or you can do the opposite and uh, create fragmented, create a more fragmented system, and that might actually help you protect uh, against coups by kind of under kneecapping, in some sense, the coercive apparatus of the state. In China, it doesn't, I mean, one of the curious things about reading about this, there's a lot of great work on this, including by Sheena Greitens, who I know was a guest on this podcast recently. And China shows, I think, really convincingly in places like Taiwan and South Korea that this is what was happening, that people were really thinking thinking about the trade-off in this way. If you look at what happened in, you know, in mainland China under the CCP, it doesn't seem like leaders think this way. And I think that partly because of the institutions that they've created with the PLA, you have a pretty strong army. And within this army, how the, the party is kind of managing Kuris is partly through this you know, bureaucratic shuffle, through personnel management. And basically making sure that you have a kind of bar that you set for officers to make sure that they're loyal to the party, you know, selecting officers who've done a lot of intensive party training, for example, through party schools, 
also officers maybe who are more like more Han Chinese, less likely to side uh, with protesters in ethnic minority regions or officers who are from rural China, maybe less likely to side with protesters in urban China. And so if you kind of set that bar for people who get promoted to some of these top positions, then you can also select people based to some degree on personal loyalty to who the current leader is. So it's possible to potentially manage this trade-off through who you promote to top positions in the PLA. I'm curious, is this a, a forward-looking strategy that you think is sort of comprehensively understood and implemented by a leader like Xi Jinping? Or is this just sort of the evolved structure of it, again, sort of incremental Hayekian learning as the party has emerged from, let's say, 1989, when it really sort of fundamentally understood in a real deep, visceral way, we need the party and, and PAP on our side? I think that's that's a great question. I mean, I, I have to guess that it's probably a little bit of both. There are, there are all these institutions that are already in place to manage how people are promoted through the system. When it comes to very high-level promotions, of course, a fair amount of politics appears to be involved, and Xi Jinping does appear to be quite conscious of who he's promoting. And I think that getting into the head of Xi Jinping is maybe it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous business, but you have to think that he is, and, and from his own public statements, it's clear that he recognizes the military as an important actor in Chinese politics. If you read Xi Jinping's speeches, right, he's always talking about the triumvirate of the party, the state, and the military. Clearly, the military is on his mind, and I think he has promoted so many of people with connections to himself who are plausibly Xi Jinping loyalists that this has to some degree to be a conscious trade-off. To stick with Xi Jinping for a moment, one of the interesting things, we're, we're still we're in the middle of the Xi Jinping reign, and we have so many questions, really deep, important questions about what's unique about Xi Jinping's understanding of power and politics that has allowed him in a very short amount of time to amass such extraordinary power. You know, Alice Miller had done some provocations on this of levels of, of sort of continuity, or at least there being a consensus within senior leadership that Xi Jinping had a remit to shake things up when he came to power. My own guess is it's hard for me to believe that the quote unquote system would have elevated him had it known just how far he would take the power consolidation. You, you imagine a Joe Yong Kong might have registered a protest vote had he known what was going to occur next. But one of the things that you've shown pretty convincingly in this is Xi Jinping has just moved quicker, farther to both elevate members of the military who have connections with him, and I guess also elevate members who don't have connections to other leaders, which may be a second best, but nonetheless still important tactic. I would imagine every leader of the CCP would like to have that degree of autonomy or the space to do that. What do you think allowed Xi Jinping to do this that, for example, was standing in the way of uh, uh, Hu Jintao? I think that there are a couple of potential factors. So one thing, which is a bit outside of the scope of the papers, I do, I do agree that there appears to have been elite consensus that things needed to change, especially in the wake of the Boshilai incident, that probably empowered, empowered Xi Jinping to make some pretty sweeping changes. And so all appearances, this elite consensus probably mattered about Wen Jiabao sort of scolding Bo Xilai at the end of the Huan era and talking about the need to fight corruption to avoid you know, the danger of another cultural revolution. It does seem clear that there was some kind of consensus at the top, even from figures like Wen Jiabao, that something needed to change from the dynamics of the Hujin Tower. So I wouldn't completely discount that. 
So there were a number of fortuitous and contingent factors that I think helped Xi Jinping and hurt his predecessor, Hu Jintao. So Hu Jintao came into office with connections to officers. I mean, I think people sometimes dismiss Hu Jintao as a kind of weak leader who had no connections to the PLA when he came into office. But because of his service as a provincial party secretary, he actually did have some connections through his uh, service as a local leader to members of you know, local PLA garrisons. However, he had to kind of compete with Jiang Zemin, who came up through the system. They were both kind of elevated to national politics at the same time. Hu Jintao, in a kind of weird way, was hurt by being a kind of like wunderkind who, who rose really quickly to top levels of politics. So by the time he got to top levels of politics, the, the PLA leaders that he knew were competing with Jiang Zemin's PLA leaders. And so Jiang was really able to dominate the military in a way that I think undermines Hu Jintao. So if Hu Jintao, if, if all autocrats, at least to a certain degree, have to worry about the threat of a coup, Hu Jintao really had to worry about the threat of a coup because he did not have very good control over the military. He didn't have strong connections to the officer corps in part because of these kind of contingent reasons. So if you go back to the, you know, the, the kind of anecdote you told of Vladimir Putin, whether it's apocryphal or not, kind of like grabbing Hu by the lapels and saying, you got to get control of the military. Well, it was a problem for Hu Jintao. Like Hu Jintao, you know, in 2007, when the PLA tested an anti-satellite rocket, there were a lot of people in D.C. who thought that the civilian government wasn't even told about this. Like they couldn't get a response out of the civilian government about why they did this. You know, more directly, when... The military tested the uh, the J-20, right, the fancy new stealth fighter. They did this in 2011 when Robert Gates was visiting town, uh, meeting with Hu Jintao. They did it the morning of the meeting. Robert Gates walks into the meeting and, you know, according to reporting, right, kind of confronts or asks who, like, why did you do this? And it's clear from the look on everybody's faces that nobody kind of had any idea that this had happened. So to some degree, it seemed like in the Hu Jintao era, his weak connections to the military was undermining him. This threat of a coup is something he had to worry about. Xi Jinping, on the other hand, partly because of the sequencing of his career, the timing of his career, was able to come into office with a lot of connections to potential candidates who he could elevate to office. So, you know, Xi Jinping, his service in Shanghai and Zhejiang, had uh, been on these party committees where he served alongside military leaders. And this meant that he had this big pool of people who he could elevate, which, which did happen in his first, in the 18th Party Congress. A lot of people with connections to Xi Jinping in the Nanjing military region were elevated to a high level. So he's insulated in a way that Hu Jintao wasn't from the threat of a coup. And I think that that was, you know, at the margins, I think that that also really empowered Xi Jinping. One of the interesting things he's done since then, as you, as you mentioned, especially as some of the connections that he made in the Nanjing military region have kind of, to a certain degree, have aged out. He's also then started promoting officers who are poorly kind of poorly connected either to other leaders or even to other members of the elite officer corps. And you can think of the thing that she has to fear to a certain extent is a coup. And if to win a coup, you need the military on your side. If you have top generals who aren't super well connected to other generals and to other uh, civilian political elites, it makes the collective action problem of a coup really hard. It insulates him that little bit and helps him accumulate power. Does restructuring a system or making personnel decisions designed to better facilitate hierarchical discipline look the same as coup-proofing? In other words, does a strategy to create a more responsive political system and responsive military look as if I am coup-proofing rather than my original intention to create a system that insulates me from the threat of internal coup? 
So obviously, Xi Jinping is also doing a whole other set of things with the military that's important to kind of wrap your head around, which is trying to reorganize the military bureaucratically, make it more responsive, make it a more efficient and professional fighting force. So you're right, these two things have, rather than necessarily being in tension with each other in a trade-off, have to some degree aligned, at least in the short run. It's been possible for Xi Jinping to do this huge bureaucratic reorganization of the military and the civilian bureaucracy in a way to make it more responsive and less corrupt. That has also allowed him to clean house in a way that benefits him because he can install his own people. So if you think about the military at the end of the Hu Jintao era, in addition to maybe being to some degree insubordinate or at least not super responsive to civilian elites, at the same time, you have people like Xu Zaiho who are just running around and are selling offices to other officers, right? The stories that came out, at least in the Western media, about his arrests are pretty stunning, right? To Xu Zaiho, who was one of the vice chairman of the Central Military Commission, and it takes more than 10 trucks to carry all the cash that he's kept in his house, right? And in his house, supposedly, he had envelopes marked with the name of the officer who gave the envelope to him in order to get promoted. That's bad in two ways for, for Hu Jintao and the party. It's bad, one, because it means that you have in the military a bunch of officers who are potentially maybe loyal to this officer, maybe, uh, but not necessarily to Hu Jintao or someone like Hu Jintao. Of course, it also undermines professionalism and military readiness. I've always reminded when you read some of these official allegations that the party puts out about, you know, fallen cadres or fallen members of the military, they're so over the top. They remind me of when Spinoza in the 17th century was expelled from Amsterdam. If you go back and read the, the official censure that, that they did, it's, you know, curse it be he when he lies down, curse it be he when he rises up. So there's a, a, a nice uh, sort of continuance of, of how some of these political authorities just go over the top when they want to expel someone from a uh, tribe. I wanted to pivot to get to my last question or set of questions, which is right now we've got, we're on the eve of the 20th Party Congress. There is no, I think, speculation anymore about is Xi Jinping going to go for a third term as general secretary and then as chairman of the Central Military Commission and, and obviously as president of the PRC, which leads to lots of questions and speculation about how far can this guy drive the system before there's a Newtonian response from unseen elements who are frankly worried about what a next term of Xi will, will look like. And of course, there's been speculation that there's elements we can't see within the system who are hiding their brightness and biding their time and waiting for Xi Jinping to royally screw up. You talk a lot about in, in a traditional setting, you know, coups are hard. It's a collective action issue. And so I wanted to get your assessment on, given the, the story you've laid out in your paper about Xi Jinping's ability to promote and support and to essentially reshape the senior leadership of the military in ways that seem to decrease the likelihood of coup or at least diminish the possibility of opposition. Where does he stand? Do you think he's successfully reached escape velocity here on the exigencies of autocratic violent politics? Is this a guy who is now kind of stalling after the purges where he has wiped the table clean and now it's just a matter of, of running out the, the clock till he has a stroke? What is your assessment of that big question of Xi Jinping's consolidation of power and strength in the system? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. And putting on my 
speculation hat, which I'm more than more than happy to <laughs> happy to wear for the rest of the rest of this podcast. I mean, I think well, first of all, never say never when it comes to something like this. Right? Even someone like Mao, right, at the height of his power, at the height of the cult of Mao. Again, you have to take with a grain of salt the, what the parties put out about Lin Biao, but it does seem plausible that there was at least some kind of split between Mao and Lin Biao, even at the height of really kind of the height of Mao's power. So even within the Chinese political system, when you have a leader who's even more powerful than Xi Jinping, because I think, I mean, it, I think that Mao at the height of the Cultural Revolution had more authority within the political system than, than Xi Jinping does even now. You can't completely rule it out. With that caveat, uh, I do think that he's done enough that it makes it really, really hard to launch a successful coup against him. So my own view is that between promoting people who are loyal to him and promoting kind of like left behind officers who aren't well connected to other civilian elites and other military elites, that he's done enough on the military side to make it really hard to get military buy-in to a coup. And there are a number of other factors, I think, that push against it. And number one, I think there's a, a real sense of unity and national force that I think Xi Jinping has effectively stoked by first painting the United States as a threat to China. And I think that some of this kind of rhetoric about the role of the party as an important force in China's great revival, I, I, I do think that it's probably been effective. If you look at the PLA Daily, for example, and the number of articles that mention the current paramount leader of China, the PLA Daily is way more focused on Xi Jinping than the PLA Daily was focused on Hu Jintao, Chang Zemin, or even Dong. So there's been this really laser focus on making sure the military is loyal. So I think those factors kind of combined make it really hard to launch a coup. So even though, you know, never say never, if I'm going to put my neck out there, I'd say that, that Xi Jinping has done enough to coup proof. Xi Jinping is probably not going to fall in a coup. But what are the scenarios, right? What are the, what are the possible scenarios? You know, I think one one thing would be some either military or economic misadventure, you know, could possibly turn the elite officer corps against against Xi Jinping. You know, you can imagine like a real, real, some real economic disaster could could sour, even though the PLA is a party military, it seems conceivable that that could be something that could turn people against Xi. But that seems pretty unlikely to me. It seems unlikely to me, even in the face of some kind of severe economic downturn that the military would turn away from the party. You know, a military misadventure, say like an invasion of Taiwan, again, in the realm of speculation here, that goes really poorly. And you could imagine that that could end up reflecting poorly on, on Xi Jinping in a way that might make some officers really mad. I think that those are pretty, two pretty unlikely events. So even though I think maybe the kind of authoritarian resilience narrative has to some degree been oversold, at least in the academic literature of the last 15 years, I don't think that a coup launched against Xi is terribly... Likely, what I do think is likely, or more, what I do think is more problematic for the party is what happens after she, either you know, leaves office at some point or dies. And what will this succession struggle look like? Because this transition from a really from personalized autocracy back to collective rule is, a, you know, as, as you saw at the end of the Mauer, it can be really problematic. That's where I think the the party, in a sense, kind of needs to watch out, and where the role of the military could become super important. Of course, this is where uh, loyal listeners of Pekingology will, will have already heard our September 24th episode with Erica Franz entitled, What Happens If Xi Jinping Dies in Office? But Dan, I want to end it on that cheery note and thank you for your time. I want to recommend everyone 
go out and buy a wonderful book, The Art of Political Control in China, which for all 76 of you who subscribe to the New York Review of Books, you will know that Dan's book is featured in a really interesting, important article by Ian Johnson looking at how the political system or the governance system in China dealt with COVID-19. But Dan, I'm really looking forward to the final publication of this paper. Um, this is a really important and underappreciated component of China's continued rise in integration. And it seems that there are two countervailing trends at work here in China. One is Xi Jinping is a careful, systematic institution builder, right? So he's working to codify, to strengthen, to revise, revamp, rejuvenate. And on the other hand, the power he thinks he needs to do that is, I think, building up some really important fragilities into the system, the leadership succession just being one of these. As the system calcifies around the person of Xi Jinping, your, your really important point about what does a post-Xi Jinping era look like when institutions have like a coral reef grown around this individual who's in power for decades. And China has escaped from the Mao era. It was able to survive, but not after some pretty significant costs. The difference now, of course, is China is so integrated into the global economy. The global economy is so integrated into China. It didn't enjoy the relative isolation that it did in 1976, which allowed it to determine some of its fate. Now, of course, the downside of integration is a lot of other individuals, including hedge funds in New York, get to decide some of your fate. So I, I think these are really important questions we need to continue to return to as the Communist Party rolls over, now entering its 100th year one of the most important, if not the important country of the, the 21st century, which is a very long-winded way of saying we will continue to watch your work very closely as you explore uh, these and other important questions. Thanks so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. If you enjoy this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.